This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Cami here. Oh my gosh. Incredibly exciting news. Today's podcast is a chat with John Paul Brammer, who wrote the book Hola Poppy. I love this book. Also, very cool. It is my Cami's Book Club July pick. You can catch John Paul and I on my Instagram. We're going live at 12 p.m. Pacific on July 23rd. Or like, let's say that you want to be super prepared for that Instagram live, go to bookshop.org slash Cammie's book club. You can order a copy of Ola Poppy, which honestly, I really, really love this book. It is very sweet. It is extremely earnest and loving. It's um, based on John Paul's very popular advice column, Ola Poppy. Um, anyway, I love this book and I hope you will too. When you go and buy it through bookshop, you help support indie book clubs or not indie book clubs, indie bookstores and keep them in business. So Cami's Book Club, wait, no, that's not it. Bookshop.org slash Cami's Book Club. Scoop this book up and I'll see you on my Instagram live in just a few weeks. It might even be this week. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still on the podcast introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. So my name is John Paul Bramer. I am a Mexican-American writer and author from rural Oklahoma, and I am the creator of Hola Papi, which was an LGBTQ advice column and is now a book with Simon & Schuster. It is a book. Um, Yes. (laughs) And it's also the July selection for Cammie's Mm -hmm. Book Club, which is my new book club. And you can go to bookshop.org or to the link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter and connect and buy it through my shop, um, a bookshop. And so that will benefit not only John Paul, but also indie booksellers. And it's a fun thing to do together is to read. That's right. Um, (laughs) I loved it. I loved your book. I I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I mean... I feel like I've been sort of watching you from afar for a minute, just on social media. Um, And it's very gentle. Your book is very gentle. Mm. And not that I, it's just sometimes you take like very glamorous photos of yourself, whether or not you (laughs) will know that that is true. You you like look very um, put together and like, Uh um, anyway, I think that that's something that I really responded to about your writing. It's very gentle. Yeah, I've actually had a few people say that. I think because um, on the internet, I can be a bit more severe. (laughs) And then my writing tends to be a little bit, um, has a rounder edge to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think you're describing the internet. If you know, I mean, (laughs) this is actually one reason I'm like kind of not meant for Twitter is that I'm like too earnest, to be honest. I like can't really yeah. do the 
thing. I can't really match the tone. The tone of Twitter is not, yes. it, it's hard for me. Um, I think that's better than what I did, which is like, I started out as a very earnest person and then slowly through my use of it, I was sort of like, oh my gosh, I can't say those things on here anymore because it's too vulnerable and people are too cruel and I sort of need to hide more things. So now I just tweet a lot of gibberish every day. <laughs> <laughs> just word salad. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's um, intelligible. I wouldn't call it gibberish, but <laughs> I do think that reading more about you, and I guess especially because the book itself is set up as a collection of advice columns, um, there's mm -hmm. a question from a reader um, that sort of begins each of the chapters. And the way that you answer is is a non-traditional advice mm -hmm. columnist way by using personal experience and then sort of getting to a conclusion at the end that just sort of says, like, this is how I've done it. But it's really, it's not like a paragraph that answers the question it's really right. like here's here's what my life has been like and i'm curious about well what it feels like sharing publicly these experiences to answer others yeah one thing i was really worried about and i was more worried about this than i was about being vulnerable or about sharing intimate parts of my past i was really worried that because the book is themed around an advice column that I would be talking about myself the whole time. And that would come across as me sort of like, you know, not really answering the question and just taking the opportunity to talk about myself. Um, because the thing about being vulnerable for me is that it doesn't really feel that way. Um, I'm sort of an oversharer to begin with. And then when I'm writing, I really feel like I'm in complete control. That's one of the things that really appeals to me about writing is that it's my own little universe. I can make whatever I want to make. And I can sort of you know, put certain emotions where I want to put them. I can conduct things a certain way. When I want to make someone laugh, I can. I kind of know how to do that on the page. I know how to put a moment in there that might make someone feel sad or reflective. And so the events themselves don't feel super vulnerable to me. It's almost like I'm copping out in a way because I am creating something based on those experiences that can sort of guide someone to a certain way of thinking or feeling about them. Um, but I have to I, cover I was my face sort of... because I so relate. But keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I almost feel like I'm cheating in a way because, yes, it seems like I'm really putting myself out there. But, you know, as a writer, I'm so interested in um, turning those life experiences into lyrics of some kind, into, you know, making music out of it. And that is sort of uh, what I enjoy doing. And so I hardly feel like, you know, I'm a brave person for it. But I was afraid to talk so much about myself just because, you know, when you're having a conversation and you can sort of feel yourself going on a little bit too long and it's like, oh gosh, I hope I'm not <laughs> yeah. boring someone. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, it doesn't, for, I think as I was, as I read it, you know, the thing that's true is, um, I mean, yeah, I guess we've now had some sharing about different queer experiences. There's like some mm -hmm. places to go and like look for a record of our lives. But, um, you know, I didn't learn in my family how to live as a queer person. So right. when I was growing up, the questions that I would have, I think this is, I think actually this thing here is an internal process that is, mm -hmm. I'm like touching your book as I say this, that like, <laughs> I think this thing is an internal process that, is part of 
being a human. I think yeah. humans are actually doing this constantly. You know, as we we start to date and then we go, wait, what is dating? And then we right. look to, you know, our families first, right? The family, mm-hmm. our families of origin when we're really little. Or then we look to like friends or other experiences of families or culture, media, things like that. We we are, this is how we learn, right? So we're like, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to play like a sort of a jigsaw puzzle of like, how do I behave right now? We plug it in. But for queer folks, so often we don't actually have something that plugs in directly. We're like faking right. it. Um, so I, to me, that's when I was reading this, it's, that's kind of how it felt is like, yeah, this is, it felt like parenting a little bit. Yeah. So much of the book, and I think that this is a through line between a lot of the chapters, is me looking for a mentor figure of some kind. And I really Mm -hmm. think that this book wouldn't exist if I had simply grown up in a place where I had the resources, where I had people looking out for me, people who could tell me, hey, here's how this works. Or if not, you know, so cut and dry like that, then just sort of letting me know it's okay to be confused about something or letting me know that it's perfectly fine and part of growing up, part of understanding yourself to feel afraid to feel lost, to feel like you're not sure where to go next. But in the absence of stuff like that, we can really find ourselves in wild predicaments and meeting people that, you know, are a little less than savory in our lives. And I think that a lot of my book is sort of about me ending up in one of those mentor positions, realizing and looking back, I never had that. And that's why so many things in my life articulated themselves quite the way they did because I just didn't know and I was trying to find out. And that's part of anyone's life, any human, but for queer people specifically, I think that there's just not a script for us. There's just not, you know, someone, or at least for a lot of us anyway, who was holding our hands into things. We had to do a lot of it on our on our own. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about where you're from. So we're talk tell me about little teeny baby John Paul. Where 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 were you growing up? <laughs> so I grew up in a place called Comanche County, and Comanche County encompasses Cache, which is a really tiny town in Oklahoma, and Lawton, which is a slightly bigger city for Oklahoma standards. I think it's like the fourth or fifth largest right now, but still not a whole lot of people. Um, and so I grew up in a place where not only was I, you know, my family was some of the only Mexicans around, but we were also some of the only people around, period. Like my neighbors were very much like cows, <laughs> Um, so it was very rural. It was very isolated. Um, and even in the rural context, I was isolated because we were up on this hill sort of with no one else around us. And I didn't grow up in a neighborhood. I didn't grow up with neighbors or anything like that. Um, so I very much have been influenced by isolation. I've been very much influenced by this idea of wanting to reach out and find people like my community in some way, whoever that was. I don't just mean the LGBTQ community. I mean, any group of people who I could be around and we can just sort of, you know, figure ourselves out together, jive together, just be, just be. (laughs) Um, I feel like I didn't have that a whole lot growing up. And I think that's where the internet became such a huge player in my life. You know, my column originally uh, was sort of born out of Into, which was owned by Grindr at the time. And Grindr, the app, is present all over the world, basically. So when my app started getting pushed around the world, That was really my first taste of what it was like to be known on that level. And I was so hooked on it. And it really is symmetrical with my experiences as a kid, just being like, am I really going to be stuck in this town forever? How am I going to find anyone? How am I going to connect with anyone? Um, And the book reflects that. The book is a lot about connection. It's a lot about 
not only connection in terms of like romantic relationships and um, friendships, but also as a writer, as the kind of product I ended up making with Ola Papi, this idea of wanting to hear someone's life story and then respond back to it as part of a conversation. Uh, yeah, I would say it's one of the biggest yeah. influences in my life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so something that's like wild to me reading. Well, when did, how old were you when you started using Grindr? Would, Gosh, would you say? I you was probably it? 21. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense with the stories that are in here. Mm. Um, how, how old are you now? How, what, I'm what time 30 now. Okay. So that's like a decade or whatever. Um, yeah. And are you still on apps? Do you still use them? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my way of being on them and my way of feeling about them has changed, but the fact of the matter remains that my profile is on multiple <laughs> apps right well, now. Say, say more about that. What, what has changed? So I've really managed to get my expectations under control because I think when I first came out, my idea was like all I had to do was get on this app and I would almost immediately find someone who I could just be with. Um, which I didn't know was a very vulnerable, scary mindset to have because, you know, when you're putting yourself out there that way and you're not really thinking or caring about, you know, who finds you and finds you interesting and wants to be with you, then you can end up in a lot of bad relationships, um, which ah. I did. So nowadays, I'm just sort of like, you know, if anything comes my way, if anything comes out of it, that's nice. Um, but I'm not expecting it. Right. I mean, I guess it it seems like from the way, just from the way you talk about your life, it seems like maybe you've used apps like Grindr in a couple different ways. Like m maybe some of it, I think, reflects like a short-term or like hookup-y relationship with somebody. But the other thing that is in here is this sort of like longer, like a dating relationship as opposed to a hookup-y yeah. relationship. And that mm -hmm. that's like, I think, it, did that feel accurate to say like, both of those presentations have been somewhat in your life. Like it hasn't been all one or it hasn't been all the other. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of my um, fatal flaws is that I'm super whimsical. So I'm just like, I don't even know what I want on Grindr anymore. <laughs> I'm just like, maybe something will pop up and it'll be interesting. And I can go down like a little life path that I can either write about or it'll be fun or it'll be fulfilling or something. Um, I, I don't have near enough. <laughs> um what do you call them? Goals, like concrete, tangibles in place for myself. I'm like, yeah, whatever happens, happens. We'll see. Has that, has, has your, has your like taste or interest or who you will meet up with changed? Has that evolved over time? Or is this, is this like whimsy that you're talking about? This like not really <laughs> allowing for like that to play into it. I just feel like as a person, I'm so down. <laughs> like, if someone just messages me and it's like, hey, I've got this thing going on later. Do you want to come? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Wow. Um, so I've gone on, like, dates or events or stuff like that with people who I'm not even, like, romantically inclined to be with even. I just think, like, oh, it's cool to get to know this person. We'll see what happens. As long as they know that, you know, that's not what I'm after, um, yeah. then I think it's fine. But, uh, yeah, I lately... I would say if I were to chart it over time, then yeah, I've definitely expanded my mind in terms of, you know, who I'm willing to go out with and who I want to see and what I'm after. Because I was, the thing was, when I was younger, it was so specific what I wanted. And that was where a lot of my disappointment came from. This idea of like really wanting something that I could define so easily 
and it just not happening because that's just not how people work and that's not how life works. It's like, you can't just walk into a dating app with like, okay, I'm going to find my husband today. <laughs> that's just not how it works. Was there, besides the like, besides the sort of permanence of a relationship, was there something else that you were looking for that when you first, this this thing that has changed for you? What What was that thing that you were looking for? I definitely think, so just as a person, one thing I'm constantly battling is my feelings of restlessness and my feelings of being bored and lonely. And I have always just hoped, like, especially in the past, that I would just find something that would add dimension to my life. I don't know what that looks like all the time. I don't know if it's a nice date. I don't know if it's a nice hookup. I don't know if it's just, you know, hanging out with someone and enjoying myself. But I have found that other people really keep me going in life. The idea of meeting new people, the idea of hearing the way that their brains work, what their lives have looked like. I'm just so invested in that. And if I don't have a steady flow of that coming into my life, I get so bored. I get so... It, everything starts to feel so tedious. I just need new human beings <laughs> cropping up every once in a while. Or I just feel like, why am I living? <laughs> wow, that's so... It's so interesting because, right, I mean, for for the way that you describe growing up so set apart, it's mm-hmm. how utterly bizarre that not just during your lifetime, but like at the exact moment that you were coming of age, things would change so much in, in terms of the way that specifically gay men um, mm-hmm. are able to find each other. Like that is that is yeah. so... It's like you were born for this or right, the, exactly. the app was made for you. Exactly. You know, like <laughs> thinking about like who would benefit the most from this? It's like <laughs> child from the hill is like that feels exactly <laughs> that feels like it's the like, person that that <laughs> is made for. It's almost like, is that auspicious? Is it cursed? I don't know. It's a coincidence for sure. Yeah. Um, and the book really reflects that. I mean, some of the things that happen to me in the book are outcomes of that mindset where it's like, this guy is about to drive me off an overpass. This guy took me to Germany. This guy, right. you know, um, uh, is a cattle rancher. And I met him while I was in Texas. It's all just sort of like, those are the life experiences I find that I enjoy writing about. And I, I collect them in a way. <laughs> wow. It's also, it's interesting to talk to you about this because obviously, you know, I know about this phenomenon, but it is so outside of my experience. Like I have, I have had, I have my own set of stories, but they are not, <laughs> um, they're not this because, you know, I think mm. for a zillion reasons. And one of them, I think that I always come back to is that, you know, when, when we think about like how gay men, and I'm really thinking about like the sort of prototypical person that I think of as using something like Grindr or the people in my mm-hmm. life who I know who use Grindr. Um, it's a, like, it's something that I would never have access to. It's not just cause like, I'm not a, it's not just cause <laughs> there's like not an app specifically designed for me, but it's <laughs> also because things like safety come into right. play in a different way. And you can't just, you know, if you're like a tiny, you know, I'm like five, four, I can't like right. show up at a random place in Texas. It's just like right. can't do it. Um, and so I think, I mean, so some of what you're talking about. It's also I think about when people talk about you know I'm a stand up comic first, and when people talk about road experiences, and they're like, yeah, you like go home with whoever, and it's like, no, you don't. What are you talking about? You don't go <laughs> home with whoever. You you go to your hotel <laughs> right. while looking over your shoulder. What are you? What experience? Right. Are, but um, 
I think that that thing, and not that you're always safe and I'm always unsafe, but that major difference is Mm -hmm. it impacts so much the culture that you and I absolutely might be part of and and the friends that we have and the way that we live our life. Um, So what you're describing, it's like, I don't know any of this from a lived experience. And when people talk (laughs) about like the LGBTQ community, it's so, um, our experiences are so dis are so disparate. Yeah, I have absolutely. like nothing but curiosity about the idea that <laughs> that you're constantly looking for new people. I'm like, keep new people away from me. Keep <laughs> <laughs> them far That's, away from me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's also understandable, know? though. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's all understandable. I another <laughs> thing that I'm curious about is whether you've seen a difference, a clear difference in um, the way you're treated on apps based on race over the t- like last 10 years. I know you talk a lot about in Oklahoma, yeah. um, not very many Mexican people being around. Mostly white? Mostly white? Is that the... Because I also yeah. know that there's a huge like indigenous slash Native American population, but I don't know if that's true in your... where you grew up. So is it mostly white? Yeah, it was mostly white. Um, the middle school I went to was sort of almost half and half between like um we had the Comanche kids and the farmers kids who were white. Um and then, you know, I, I feel like it's roughly the same, surprisingly, on the apps when I'm in New York or Oklahoma in terms of how willing people are to say weird stuff to me based on me being Latino. Um <laughs> it feels like um it, it's not like New York is that much better when it comes to stuff like that. And I think that for... I believe you, first of all. <laughs> that Nothing could surprise me less than that. That makes perfect sense. Um, it's, it's interesting because I feel like for Latino men specifically, there's this um, weird machismo, masculine desire or narrative that people want to put on you. And it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't quite rise to that occasion, nor should I have to. So... It's it's just a very strange um, storyline for me, I think. Right. You write in the book about this moment where you bought like sort of a blousey shirt and how mm-hmm. that was a super bold choice. And um, I actually I actually related to that a lot. I'll just say mm-hmm. I think, you know, in sort of a similar way. For me, when I I think that if for me being like a masculine of center presenting person there's then a lot of pressure to like check all of the boxes in that category. Right. You know, like it truly the like, and this is from queer people. This is not from fucking yeah. s- straight people. Straight people are what I have found over time, at least today. Um, most straight people in my life are like, and this isn't people on the street, but in my life are like approaching me with a curiosity about like, mm-hmm. how do you identify or like, what do you want to wear? And I find queer people are like really wanting to sort of patrol the limits of like this, but not this. Okay. But if oh, you yeah. do this, or if you have this kind of make like, like, you know, a zillion, right. Categories yeah. that, that that could fall in, like the colors that you wear, the ways that the shirts fit, like what section of the store did you get them in? Yeah. Um, you know, how, like, where's your like fade? Like, well, like what number of clippers <laughs> are you using? You know, like it's so specific and um, I feel very patrolled on that within the community, within the queer community. 
You know, I think it is. I think it's that, so like clothing, presentation, aesthetics, etc., all of that kind of represents a language and queer people are way more likely to be fluent <laughs> um, because these are things that right. they think about quite a bit. So it's like whenever we step out of the house, um, a lot of things come into play. The idea of does the way I'm presenting accurately reflect how I feel how I identify, how I want to be perceived, how I want to move through the world. Um, there's almost like many philosophical questions that go into a queer person just getting ready for the day or deciding how they want to look or like what haircut they get, etc. And a lot of straight people just kind of don't have to think about it that way. Um, and I think it's more often that, <laughs> you know, like straight people, whenever they see a queer person really um, putting themselves out there sartorially, they can be more likely to be like, oh, that's exotic, odd, interesting, unique. I kind of just want to see what's going on there. Whereas a queer person can pick up on, you know, a lot more of the influences that went into it, a lot of why the decisions were made, a lot of the statements that are sort of being put out by someone's appearance. And so on that front, it can feel like, um, I feel this way anyway, that I'm much more thoroughly dissected by a queer person looking at me than I am by a straight person. Yeah, that's so interesting. In terms of a sort of a presentation spectrum, where do you place yourself? Like, how do you? How would you describe what you wear or or an aesthetic that yeah. you are putting out? I'm not sure sometimes because, like, the clothing that I'm drawn to nowadays is very like understated. But if you can get up close to it, you can notice it's nice. Like, I like little details. I like. I care a lot about stitching and fabric, <laughs> um, really boring things, I guess, but that to me mean a whole lot. Um, but I also am a person who, it, it took me so long to understand this about myself because I thought that this was me being ashamed of myself for a long time. I thought it was internalized homophobia, et cetera. But there's something I really enjoy about melting into a crowd, actually. There's something I really enjoy about not really standing out and just sort of maneuvering on the sidelines pretty easily because as a writer, you know, I like to observe. I like to hear things. I like to see how other people live. I like to witness things. And I find that clothing that sort of helps me, you know, accommodates that goal is nice. Um, so I usually don't wear anything too loud. I usually don't wear anything. I, I have nothing but respect for people who do. And a lot of the fashion icons that I look up to are people who do just sort of like, you know, they're wearing a full look to Trader Joe's. Love that. <laughs> like, that's great. Um, I'm just not that person and kind of being okay with that and reconciling it with this idea that like, is it internalized shame or am I just sort of like, you know, um, is my taste just more muted and subdued? And I think it might be a mix of both, but more the latter than the former. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. 
I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. When you're talking about this, like, being on the sidelines, observer sort of a thing, and then you write the book, and then you have to Mm -hmm. speak on behalf of the book, (laughs) how is that for you? It's something I really enjoy because the act of writing can be really lonely. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm just like sitting in my little mole cave and typing away for a (laughs) long time and no one knows what's going on inside of me, obviously, because I'm doing it alone. And you can communicate things in a book that you can't communicate in conversation, really, or, you know, uh, casual chit chat or whatever, because I really do feel like there's a lot of intensity in me and there's a lot of depth and it's just neither appropriate nor um, commonplace to try to put that out there if you're just speaking to someone as a friend or um, even if you're like speaking, having a deep conversation with a partner or something, there are certain dimensions of yourself and there are certain nuances that can only really be brought to color and brought to texture through writing. And I really enjoy the idea of finally putting it out there and having people react to it and seeing how it lands on people. It's extremely anxiety-inducing, to be sure. Um, Not all of it is great, but a lot of it is nice (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, it is so funny how um, you're very good at, like, I I think reflecting in real time your feelings Mm. about something that I, that's just something I don't, not every writer that I've ever spoken to has had that (laughs) um, like verbal skill set also, because sometimes I think it's folks who really enjoy gathering their thoughts that end up becoming writers, you know, like that's, Mm -hmm. it's a different, the extemporaneous, extemporaneous speaking is like so different than um, thoughtful directed at a laptop. Uh, <laughs> speaking um and, and yeah. it's interesting to sort of i don't know I'm, I'm just noticing that you have a fluency in both things which is thank you like it's very hard for me to sit down and write because i yeah <laughs> i'm a verb i'm like verbal first and writerly mm-hmm. second and then i certainly know people who are writerly first and verbal second it seems like you maybe are okay with both things in terms of <laughs> a skill set what do you think about that It's really the same energy for me, whether I'm like sitting in front of a Word document or because I draw too, so like a canvas, or if I'm just like talking to someone, um, the the energy is just like, okay, go. (laughs) And then whatever happens, happens. Um, (laughs) I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in the top of my head. I think that when I try too hard, I mess myself up because I'm so anxious. You know, I'm so, I have so much anxiety about everything that if I give myself too much time, um, I sort of get in my own way. So I've sort of learned to just sort of trust where my instincts are leading me. And I've put in the practice and I've put in the hours that now I think, okay, just see where you're going with this. Just trust the top of your head a little bit. Um, and that's been really helpful for me with speaking, with writing, with drawing. Because again, like <laughs> um, if you give me too much time, I will think my way out of worthy things. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. Uh, relatable very relatable (laughs) i want to go back um to when we were talking about the 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 sort of i'm gonna call it like input or like feedback or -hmm. could be called racism (laughs) that you have experienced (laughs) on the apps because um my audience you know it's everybody but it does skew folks who were assigned female at birth and Mm -hmm. i'm not sure everybody 
in that group would know what you're talking about. Because, again, these apps are, yeah. they're not actually targeted or at everybody. Um, yeah. And so, but I know that it's also the, part of this is like the inspiration for the title of the book and then also the title of the column. So could you talk to me a little bit more about what you've experienced in yeah, so the term poppy and hola poppy was sort of something that I encountered quite a bit when I was just, you know, on the dating apps looking for dates or hookups or whatever. Um, and it was something that came up so frequently that I had to start wrestling with it at some point. I was like, why are people saying this to me and what's going on? And I sort of tied it to a lot of other sort of sentiments and um, pre-existing fetishes that people had of this idea of like a big, strong Latino man, kind of like, you know, a dominating presence sort of coming in and um, having their way with them or something. And a lot of that is based on really weird stereotypes of brown men, of Latino men, you know. Um, and you saw some of that rhetoric even get brought to the fore with, you know, Trump, for example, just this idea that everyone down there, the men down there are sort of like... Um, uh, aggressive, violent, um, you know, violators, this whole thing. And the other, you know, the other side of the coin of that is people who think that it's maybe not so much a positive thing, but an erotic thing or an exotic thing. Just this idea that it is arousing that, um, you know, this brown man wants to hook up with me. And so they have this, this whole Ola Poppy thing is predicated on the idea that like, um, you're a macho, you're a manly man. Uh, and that's just not something, even like, no matter what body I've been in, because I, you know, my weight has fluctuated, my size has fluctuated, I've still gotten Ola Papi sent to me. I was very much just like a twink in college and people were calling me that. So I, I've noticed that it is so racialized, um, you know, not always based on, you know, uh, what race you find yourself in, but racialized term. <laughs> um, and I thought that was really something I could flip around a little bit. So with Ola Papi, I wanted to sort of reclaim it in a way. And there was some reluctance from Grinder, who kind of gave me the first green light to do the column because they didn't want to bring attention to the fact that their app is sort of rampant with uh, fetishism and racism. They, they didn't want to put a spotlight on it. Uh, but I was like, no, this is a really important name to me because I think that I can do what I do with a lot of things in my life, which is make it a little bit funny find a little bit more power in it and subvert it in a way. And I'm just so glad that I won that fight because now it's the <gasps> title of a lot of what I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, always good to be the first Google result for something yeah. that otherwise without you could be used in a super exactly. negative way. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually had not, till you said this, I had not made the like Trump, you know, connection mm. to thinking about certainly the, the sort of general thing that you're talking about, you know, on my mind and I knew about, but I don't think I really mm. thought about um, being a gay man during that time. Because because I think when he said it, I really felt like the context of, well, because I don't actually think that that man has ever thought about queer people in his entire life. And right. like, I don't think we're even <laughs> on his mind. So it's like, I think when he said it, it felt very like, guard your daughter, guard your white daughters. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, but, you know, of course, obviously everything that, you know, that impacts straight people also impacts queer people. So yeah. um, did you, did you notice a, during that time, was there a specific way that you were being treated differently or like 
things were more egregious or was there no change, you know, when, when things were like, so I just think so specifically stated on the news, you know, to me, it felt like, okay, this is a thing in my lifetime. I haven't really seen as an adult, so overtly stated on the news. I'm curious if if that affected something like, you know, grinder. Um, It's like one thing about Trump is that, you know, he wasn't unique in terms of the views he represented or held. Um, He was just very good at tapping into pre-existing sentiments. And the sentiment um, that sort of undergirds a lot of his philosophies and his way of doing things has been around for a long time and was emboldened, I think. And that was the most noticeable thing about me navigating, like, you know, dating men, being on the apps or whatever. It was more that there were people who felt like they could get away with more and that they could say more of what was the horrible things that were on their minds um, and sort of put their feelings out there more. They were very much like, okay, um, this guy's got our back and he's the most powerful guy in the country and I can do this now. (laughs) That was the most common thing. So it wasn't necessarily people parroting exactly what he said or sort of like... um, word for word, kind of taking what he said as gospel, it was more the energy. <laughs> the energy was very right. palpable to me. Yeah, I mean, that. yes, absolutely. I, I, I know what you're talking about. Also, the idea that, like, that, also that this is okay with everybody. Like, that's how I felt, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when I was, you know, as like a survivor of sexual assault, as a queer person, the idea that, like, we all heard what he said, so this has to be okay, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, I just imagine if you did, like, really agree with a lot of stuff you were saying, then you'd be like, okay, yeah. well, it turns out I'm actually in the majority. You know, like, turns out that this thing that I've, like, been fake covering up, like, I don't even have to, you know? So, I mean, and maybe right. it's not that. Maybe it, it didn't rise to that level of um, consciousness, but sometimes I felt like it did in my experience of the last, Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that you know, people engage in power dynamics without always fully understanding what they're doing. Um, so, you know, contempt for marginalized people is something that a lot of people tapped into over the past few years. And I don't think that they would ever express it that way. I don't think they would even necessarily say like, oh, well, I hate queer people. I hate non-white people. They may not ever say that, but <laughs> they have certainly sort of allowed the idea that there are people who are beneath them who are sort of asking for too much and trying to change things too much shouldn't be doing that. And it sort of guides a lot of their actions. Um, yeah, I'm sure so. a lot of smart people are on the case about what the hell was going on <laughs> and what the hell continues to be going on in this country. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of my job just to be like, okay, uh, I'm going to say my piece, give my little piece of the puzzle here, and <laughs> try not to pretend like I know everything, because I don't. It's what the book's about. <laughs> well, it's also, I would say it's also about... Um, Dang, I mean, John Paul, it's like, it's just very tender, you know? Like, mm. it's a very sweet book. It's very tender. And I think something that really stands out to me again, it's like in, you know, the shitty stereotype version of like gay male hookup culture, mm-hmm. which like, you know, glory holes are like now, I think, <laughs> in terms of a like mental space. Now that's like grinder or whatever in people's minds, right. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I, 
I think within the community or like outside too, you know? And I think, um, one thing there was, I like years ago, I went to this like short film festival and they had, uh, there was a film that was, it was these two dudes and they were like, I don't know, they were like 70 or something. And they had been together Mm. for a very long time and how they met was at a glory hole. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, cause like, when they met 50 years ago or whatever, it's like, that's where, that's where you went. Like there, that was the thing. So like, it's not, this isn't fucked up or pervy or like gross or weird or, you know, um, this is like beautiful. Like it was so cute to hear them talk about their experience. And then like, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be a relationship that lasts for 50 years for it to be okay. But I think even Mm -hmm. within our own community, we can be very like, disparaging about Mm -hmm. this behavior and really like dehumanize ourselves. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a gay dude, so I don't, but I certainly hear it, you know, the way that um, gay men self disparage around, you know, issues like, like a hookup, like hookup culture. And anyway, it's, I think it is actually very healing to read like some of these relationships are, they're not, they didn't last for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and you still can, you still had an emotional availability to them. And like, cause of course you're not a in, you're not an inhuman robot, but that <laughs> is very different from, I think the sort of prevailing description of yeah. the sexuality that you're talking about in this book. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people do things out of fear and a lot of the meanness that gets associated with, you know, gay male culture, this idea of constantly putting yourself and other people down, always having this um, searing remark to make. And, you know, a lot of that um, comes from outside the community, but a lot of it is self-perpetuated as well. And I think it just kind of comes from being afraid (laughs) of being hurt, of, you know, putting yourself out there, Um, It's almost like if I can preemptively wound this other person, then they can't wound me. And I think that the reason I was able to be so nuanced in this book and, you know, kind of put some raw emotions out there that I otherwise wouldn't on Twitter, for example, is because I'm not writing out of fear when I'm writing my book. I'm not primarily concerned with not giving someone else an opening to hurt me. Um, Because I know what it feels like to navigate life feeling that way. I am a user of social media, (laughs) Uh, you know, not wanting to give someone the chance to hurt you in some way, to wound you, just to have that witty remark that just devastates you or whatever. Um, That's what's nice about a book. It's a little bit like uh, I'm stuck with me and talking to myself, and I do trust me at the end of the day, so I can afford to talk honestly and openly about what my feelings were and give other people the grace that I would like to be given if I were being written about. Um, That's one thing I really like about sitting down with a Word document by myself with my laptop that I don't have (laughs) in other arenas in my life. Yeah. And I mean, yes, yes. I think there's a way where, right, that that's like the cutting remark or like the sort of like roasty uh, (laughs) personality (laughs) thing that, that, that comes out for some folks when they feel fear. But the other thing that you mentioned is 
you know, for me anyway, it's like, it's not just saying the thing about the other person before they notice you. It's it's much more often for me. It's like saying the thing about myself before somebody else notices Mm -hmm. it. So, right. Especially something like, you know, gay male sexuality, which has throughout time, it's like, it's so how disgusting, you know, to have the sex that you want, especially if it's like non-procreative sex, you know, if it's cis gay dudes and it's like, well, why would you even have, like, this is, you know, this is a misuse of our bodies. And so, you know, in, in, in a culture that, that has slung that, you know, it makes sense Mm -hmm. that then the, the sort of leading with like, yeah, we are, you know, gross or vapid or, you know, something like that. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, then it's like a very, it's very political to sort of say, no, this was like tender for me. You know, that's a very political thing to, yeah. to do. Um, one chapter where that really felt foremost on my brain is when I was writing about having a girlfriend in high school and sort of being unwilling <gasps> to write that person off as like, you know, part of my fake life or as a joke. Because, um, you know, a lot of gay men do that. They talk about being gold star gays or they call the woman that they dated in high school a beard or something. And I sort of wanted to be like, there has to be something there. There had I, I know what I felt at the time, and it was very warm, and it was very instructional, and that was one of my good friends, and we actually worked together well in some ways. And I, I remember feeling really nice that I was giving myself the freedom to write about that, because obviously if I had written that same thing just like five years ago, I think the narrative of like, well, see, you do like women, you just haven't met the right one yet would have come up a lot. Um, Mm. Yeah, that was just an example of just like, yeah, how can I just be honest? How can I be gracious? How can I, you know, present this relationship with all the tenderness and warmth that I think it deserves? I like loved that. I loved that section so much because first of all, I I really appreciated it, you know, as somebody who had, like I had, I had boyfriends that I really cared about and, it has been confusing mm-hmm. over time. I can like chuckle at myself about that time because like what did you think was going on is like a very I mean there there's a lot right. for me <laughs> to laugh at in like how did you think yeah. this is what was going on? Like that is funny to me. But um yeah, that is a person I cared about, you know, and I and I especially think that that's powerful coming from um, a man because, you know, I have felt at times in my life like gay men treat me with like a, I mean, disdain maybe is too powerful, but like just ir- like just yeah. to, to to feel that you are like actually irrelevant. Yeah. Even in like, it's like I'm talking to this person, the only the two of us are talking and I think wow, this is, there. Don't, I don't even, I'm not even a person. <laughs> I'm, a, yeah. I'm a transparent object, you um, know? And I think, um, I don't know, it was, it was really powerful to read that from you because of that. The word that comes to my mind is like unconsidered, you know, just oh, this sure. idea of just like, this person doesn't have like um, anything for me. There's no depth to this person. Just a flattening out of another human being to sort of accommodate um, a narrative or just due to lack of interest. And that's sort of what I wanted to talk about because it was so, it, I find it to be so prevalent in the gay male community. And I was just like, how can I just sabotage this a bit? Um, and that was the chapter that did it for me. And I, 
It was an easy one to write, actually, surprisingly, because I look back and I was like, God, it was actually kind of fun <laughs> being a freshman and being in a relationship. Like, it was just uh, a good time in my life, actually. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so beautiful. Um, I mean, the book is beautiful. Yeah. And I'm really grateful to have read it, to be honest. I thought, I thought like, I just, I just loved it. Thank I went, so I read much. it before, before sleeping and, it, um, it put me in a nice mood to drift <laughs> off. And that Good is like, space. that, yeah, exactly. I just felt like I felt very cared for. So you're really good at that. That's a huge compliment to me. Like one of my favorite compliments that I've gotten from someone so far has been like, oh, I took your book with me on the flight and it got me through like New York to Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. What a great utilitarian purpose for my book. <laughs> that makes me feel like I did a job, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's nice. <laughs> but, you know, to to feel like cared for by an author, I mean, that to me is like, what could be better than that, really? It's 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 huge. So thank you for writing it. And um and for talking. And I know we're going to have a chance to do an Instagram live and we're going to yes. talk more about the book. And so anybody that's listening now, you can join us and it will be on July, I believe, 23rd. Let me look at my calendar. Right. It will be July 23rd. <laughs> yes. Um, at noon. And we'll be talking on Instagram a little bit more about um, the book. We'll be talking about anything that anybody wants to ask in the comments also. Um, I'm excited. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's a huge, that's that's huge for yeah. me. Um, you know who I'm going to say? Um I don't think this person would ever hear this or whatever, but <clears throat> there was like one openly gay kid <laughs> in my high school whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was, first of all, my mom was also an English teacher in my high school. Like I had her for English and my mom has a way of just like finding gay people. So her and Jonathan were besties. <laughs> like when I was in high school, I always tried to like distance myself from Jonathan because I was afraid. I didn't want to be, because in middle school I was so bullied for being gay um, that I didn't want anyone to even know anything was up with me. But Jonathan, without even knowing it, actually helped me out so much. Just like someone being that brave in the same part of the country where I'm from, just being like, okay, forget it. I'm gay. So what? Like that was huge to me. And to have gotten that message at the young age that I got it from my peer, from someone who was my same age and someone who was in the same institution that I was my high school. Um, that means a lot to me. It, it reminded me on some days that like, you know, there is a world out there where you can probably be yourself and just hang tight. You'll get there. Um, so thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> that was, that's a queero for me. That is so lovely. And I hope <laughs> that somehow, some way, Jonathan does find out about <laughs> this. Too, yes. Yeah, that would be beautiful. Well, thank you again. And I will talk to you in just a few weeks. Yes. Can't wait. Thank you, Cameron. 